one other announcement that um, we, was going to frustrate a lot of you. We have a new book called What God Wants Me to Know. Now, these, these new books are taken from what some of you can remember have been around for a while. There were some quarterlies that were published by uh, Theme Bible Ministries down in Houston that were used originally as the Sunday school quarterlies or the Sunday school material down there back in the dark ages when I was a child. And those were um, sort of taken out of primary use. They were used for resource over the years after they changed to prep school. But they are redoing those quarterlies and putting them out uh, as one, in, in eight volumes. There were eight years in that, in that curriculum. And so now they're putting, putting them out for sort of a parent's manual for uh, you to use at home with your kids. So we have, uh, I don't know how many we received the other day, but we made sure that each teacher in prep school received one, so they have it, and then we had four left over. So the rest of you can fight over those four. But since many of the parents are also teaching in prep school, that covers most of the parents, so there may not be that much. And we'll, we will definitely get some more. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. Uh, Whenever we sin as a believer, we lose fellowship with the Lord. We lose the operational, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and we are operating then on the sin nature. To recover, we simply identify or acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our own priesthood, we are instantly forgiven and cleansed, restored to fellowship, and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together today to study your word. We thank you that you have revealed so much to us, that you have given us a complete and sufficient revelation that is all that we need for life and godliness. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom in this nation to study your word. We thank you for uh, this country, the forefathers who are willing to uh, sacrifice 
to give their lives that we might have this freedom. Father, we continue to pray that you would watch over our nation, watch over our president, keep him safe, especially uh, this week while he is out of the country. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation from the threats of those who would seek to destroy us. Father, we pray for us in our spiritual life that we might be steadfast, that we might focus on your word, that we might not be shaken in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, that we might uh, be willing and able to remove the distractions in our lives that keep us from focusing on our spiritual life and learning doctrine. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study that we may continue to advance in spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we come to the last section in this lengthy chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter dedicated to the exposition of one doctrine, and that is the doctrine of physics. The physical bodily resurrection, not just that of Christ, but the physical bodily resurrection of every believer. And as I have said by way of introduction for the past several months, to make sure you understand this, the problem in Corinth was that in because of their background in Greek thought, Greek philosophy, there was a rejection of physical bodily resurrection. In fact, the idea that you would have physical bodily resurrection was repugnant to them for a couple of reasons. One had to do with their basic understanding of the material world, that the material world was somehow tainted, and therefore to be really, truly free, you had to be freed from this material world and the restraints of your physical body and enter into the ideal world. There was also a misunderstanding of the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection because there were those that thought that we just got this same old corporeal, corruptible body back. And so Paul addresses all of these issues. He addresses the theological issues earlier in the chapter and relates it, the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection to the resurrection of Christ, establishing in the first 11 verses that Christ was raised from the dead, that though he died physically, and it was certain and sure that he did die physically, he didn't pass out on the cross, he didn't swoon, it wasn't some sort of uh, hoax, but that he truly did die, and on the third day, according to the Scriptures, was raised from the dead. And there were witnesses to that. And at the time that Paul wrote this epistle to the Corinthians, which would be around 53 or 54 A.D., then there were only 30 years or 20 years had passed since Christ had died. And in those 20 years, many of these witnesses were still alive. They had not died. And so if you wanted to check it out, you could go talk to one of them. And, and many of the apostles had also traveled uh, throughout Asia Minor and other areas, so they knew of these other apostles. And they knew there were eyewitnesses, and he shows that there were over 500 witnesses to the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And then in verses 12 through 19, he demonstrates that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection. And then he sort of flips that argument and says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised. Both would be true. So if there is no resurrection and Christ isn't raised, then there is no salvation. 
our sins weren't paid for. The salvation wasn't complete. There's no victory over sin. Verse 17, he said, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is empty. You are still in your sins. But now, he says in verse 20, Christ is risen. Perfect tense, emphasizing the present reality of a completed past action. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the first fruits indicated that there would be subsequent resurrections. And in that section from verses 20 down through 28, he establishes the relationship between Christ's resurrection as the first fruits, as the first of a series of resurrections that would take place, and his ultimate rule and reign over all, all creation. That he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, verse 25, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, he's going to pick that theme up again in this last paragraph. For in verse, at the end of verse 54, he quotes from Isaiah 25, 8, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? And the New King James has, O Hades, where is your victory? There's a textual problem there we'll have to discuss when we get there. But at this point, we'll just emphasize the correlation between the fact that Christ's resurrection establishes victory over death. Now, there is another question raised in verse 35. Verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? The question there focuses on mechanics. How is this going to happen? Any, the, the question is further expanded by a second question. And with what body do they come? So Paul begins to answer this in the first, thir- first section from verses 36 down to 49, which we've studied in the last uh, two or three weeks. How are the dead raised up? What are the mechanics that it's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body? It is sown in dishonor and raised in honor and is sown corruptible and raised in incorruption. He picks up those same words when we get into the last section that that man is born a sinner, and we, our, our physical body is tainted by sin. It's the home of the sin nature. And as he points out in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So in verse 50, we make the transition from the mechanics to the kind of body that we receive, that there is a new body. It has a tie. There's continuity with the old body, but there's a new body. And the model for this goes back to understanding what happened when Christ was raised from the dead. When they went into the tomb, they didn't find the old body. The old body, his human body that he had had for those 30-plus years of his humanity, had been transformed into a new body. So the, the body that the Lord Jesus Christ had in resurrection had some connection with the original body, but it had been completely transformed into a new resurrection body. So the model here is not that God just creates a new body unrelated to our original body, but there is some sort of continuity. Of course, people raise questions like, well, what happens to someone who's cremated? Their ashes are scattered. 
Well, think about it. There are folks who have drowned in the sea, and their bodies decomposed in the water, and their molecules are spread all over the earth by now. There are those who have been killed in fires. There have been those who were killed in wars. There have been those whose bodies were buried in places in the ground thousands of years ago, and their bodies have decomposed, and the soil has been moved or turned up, farmed, whatever, and and those molecules are all scattered. But we have an omnipotent and omniscient God who is not limited by those factors. So however he pulls it all back together, we know that he does and he will. And there is a continuity, but there is also a discontinuity or a distinction between the present body and the future body because the present body is corruptible, and that means it can die, it it ages, it grows fat, it develops diseases, it has all kinds of limitations that we uh, experience as we grow older. But the new body is not corruptible. The word corruption implies not only its fallibility, but it also implies and relates to the fact that it is tainted by the sin nature. And so there must be a change. There must be a purification and glorification of that body. And that takes place uh, at, at an event known as the rapture. Either, and whether you die first or whether we are still alive, it takes place at the same time. And this is the background to understanding the first three verses of this last section. Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And he begins this statement with uh, the verb "fami," present active indicative, now I say, and "fami" simply means to say something orally, Or in writing, you're making an affirmation. It's different from the normal word that you would expect, which is the Greek word lego, to speak or to say. And it has to do with providing a fuller explanation of a statement. He is not just simply affirming something, but he is expanding on something he has already said. So the idea is, is that now this I say by way of fuller explanation. And the explanation is an expansion on his answer to the questions back in verse 35. Now this I say, brethren, so it's clear once again he is addressing believers, and the issue here is not uh, oriented to unbelievers. He says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now the term flesh and blood is simply an idiom for the body. This present body, flesh is the word sarx, blood is the word hema, from which we get a word we use, like a hematology. Uh, this is a basic idiom for a present mortal corporeal flesh. That, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now here we get into an important understanding of Scripture and a bit of a problem. What we... So let's break it down by looking first at the at the grammar here. The word inherit here is the aorist active infinitive of kleronomeo. That's spelled K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-E-O. Kleronomeo. 
The aorist active infinitive is tied to a present active indicative of dunamai, which is translated cannot in most versions, but should be understood to be is not able. Flesh and blood is not able to inherit. It's not possible for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to ask the question, what does inherit mean? Because we have it twice in this verse, in this parallel construction. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So there's a parallel set up here. Inheriting the flesh and blood, inheriting the kingdom of God, is parallel to corruption, inheriting incorruption. The kingdom of God is a status of incorruption. And this word kleronomeo is used twice. The second time it's a present active, that should read indicative, present active indicative uh, to inherit or to possess. That's the idea. But it's one of those words that is not understood in isolation. And one of the most important things to understand in Bible study is that, well, there are times when you study a word in isolation in, in its context, uh, there are other times when the word really gains its significance because it's of its location in a whole phrase. And uh, that's one of the great values of using some of these uh, computer programs today is that you can do things you could never do before. And that's search phrases and search usage of certain kinds of, uh, of constructions, grammar constructions. It used to be in the old days when everything was done the hard way, you would take out a concordance and you would turn to one page and you would look up all the uses of inherit and then you would turn to another page and you would look up a word like kingdom and then you would go back and forth and try to manually identify all of the places if there were any verses in common between those two those two pages which would take at least a day to do so it took a long time now you can just type into a computer and inherit within five words of kingdom and in a half a second, you have a list of all the places in the Bible where the word inherit is used within five places of the word kingdom. And what we discover is there are only five places, five passages in Scripture where this concept is used. And it's always used in conjunction with this phrase, kingdom of God. It's never just inherit the kingdom. And so this excludes from our understanding that, that this is just sort of an idiom for entry into heaven. See, that's how, that is especially how amillennialists will take this. Now remember, amillennialism is a theological system that denies a future, literal, thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Amillennialism is associated with covenant theology, which is associated with, with, uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology. Now, not all Calvinists are necessarily amillennial, but all, let me tell you, all amillennialists are pretty much Calvinistic. Well, that's not exactly true. You have a lot, Roman Catholicism is also amillennialism. And there, all of a sudden, I have a speaker on. See, I told you all the speaker was not on earlier. But now, now I hear it. Did you hear that change? Oh, it's been on? See, I couldn't hear it on before. Now I can. Okay. All right. So you have uh, 
amillennialism is really part of a broader structure called replacement theology. And in replacement theology, the idea is that the church replaces Israel in the promises of God in the Old Testament. And so Israel will never receive the uh, benefit of the promises of God in the Old Testament. So the kingdom promise of the Old Testament is now transferred to the church. It's spiritualized or allegorized so that the church doesn't have a literal kingdom on the earth, but it's just going to heaven. And that's amillennialism. So amillennialism shows up in various different types of theology, but within our context, we most often run into it in a Calvinistic, Reformed, uh, covenant theology system, although it is prevalent in every system other than dispensationalism. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons as we're going to get into this, because if inherit the kingdom of God simply means getting into heaven, then that indicates a entry point into heaven and just... A, that it, all this means is that we're going, before we can go into heaven, we have to get a new body. But there's more to it than that, and we discover that when we look at the other verses that use this terminology. These other verses are Matthew 25, 34, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Galatians 5, 21, Ephesians 5, 5. I'll go over those again. Matthew 25:34, 1 Corinthians 6:9, Galatians 5:21, Ephesians 5:5. 5, 5. Now, with with the exception of Matthew 25:34, three of those passages all deal with the same type of issue. And I will just go to Ephesians 5:5 5, 5 because it's one verse, it's the shortest. You may want to uh, turn there in your Bibles. I don't have a slide for this. In Ephesians 5, 5, Paul says, For this you know that no fornicator nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, this verse is the only place that adds Christ to the phrase. It's not just the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, that verse is parallel in its, in its content to Galatians 5:21, which lists a series of, of sins, the, the fruit of the, the uh, excuse me, the work of the flesh, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And you have the same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians 6:9. You have a list of sins and the conclusion that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5 5 concludes and says that those who list four different sins and says those who, who do this do not have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So as soon as we add that term Christ and that passage, it makes it clear that we're talking about the millennial kingdom, the period that comes after the second coming of Christ. So in the millennial kingdom, there are those who don't have an inheritance if they commit certain sins. Of course, this raises the whole issue. Does that mean that I can trust in Christ and then if I commit one of these sins, if I am envious? Let's take the easy ones. If I'm envious, if I'm covetous, let's translate that into modern English, if I'm, a, if I'm materialistic. So you can look covetous and we can duck somewhere and hide. That doesn't apply to me. But materialistic, that's a tough one for modern Americans to avoid in our 
uh, commercial-driven society where every time we turn on the television, they're throwing things at us that we ought to buy and ought to have and like to have. And somehow they promise that we'll have a life of happiness and stability and, and meaning and sex appeal and everything else if we just have this new item, whatever it is, anything from toothpaste to a new sink or bathroom or whatever it might be. So the Scriptures say that if you commit some of these, any of these sins, you're not going to have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Well, is that what that really means on the surface? And we've studied this, and I do not want to get distracted by this this, this uh, morning. We have uh, other things to get into. But inheriting the kingdom doesn't have to do with entering the kingdom. It doesn't have to do with entering heaven. It has to do with, in, with inheritance. And as we've seen in our definition of kleronomeo, it means to inherit or to possess. And there's a difference between possessing the kingdom, and being in the kingdom. In the same way that in the Old Testament, Israel inherited the land, but not everyone who was in Israel was an heir. Because there were some who in Israel who lived there, but they, were not, they did not have property. For one thing, the tribe of Levi did not have property. There was, there was no tribal land designated for the Levites. They were in the land, but they did not have a possession in the land. There were others. There were Gentiles. There were uh, foreigners who lived for generations in Israel, but they, did, they were not part of a tribal group, so they did not have a, a possession or inheritance designated for them. So it's clear when we do a word study of inheritance that it has the idea of possession, and there are going to be those in the millennial kingdom that are heirs of the kingdom and participate in all the rights and privileges and ruling and reigning in the kingdom. And there are other believers who are going to be present in the kingdom and experiencing a certain level of blessing by their presence, but they are not going to be heirs of the kingdom. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Galatians 5, 21, Ephesians 5, 5, all deal with that. So by looking at those passages, we realize that this phrase, inherit the kingdom, has to do with uh, possessing and being an heir in the future millennial kingdom. It's not heaven. It is that future thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth. Now, one passage I do need to address and do want to speak to is in Matthew 25, 34. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25, 31 to 34. Matthew 25, 31 to 34 is a part of a series of parables that Jesus is using to describe certain aspects of the last days and the end times. Matthew chapter 24 focused on the question of what are the signs of your coming. Not the rapture, but the signs of the second coming. There are no signs for the rapture, which is what we'll get into in a few minutes, for the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment. Matthew 24 deals with the coming of Jesus Christ at the second coming. And then Jesus gives several parables describing different, or teaching certain doctrines related to the second coming. And he concludes in Matthew 25, 31 with uh, describing the sheep and the, what is called the sheep and the goat judgment. Verse 31, when the Son of Man, the Son of Man is a title for Jesus Christ, 
taken from Revelation, I mean, excuse me, Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the second person of the Trinity who comes to destroy the kingdoms of man and to establish his kingdom at the second coming. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now, those of you who are going to be here second hour for Revelation, remember this. It is when Jesus Christ comes in his glory that he sits on his throne. We're going to do a whole study looking at the throne of uh, that's mentioned in Revelation. And what we discover is Jesus never sits on a throne in the book of Revelation. He's on the throne of the Father. Revelation 3.21, we will, those who overcome will be allowed to sit on his throne. But right now he's sitting on his Father's throne. Then he will, it's only when he comes at the second coming that he will sit on the throne of his glory. And that's when he begins to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords and as King of Israel. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left hand. Now the sheep are believers and the goats are unbelievers. And this is at the end of the tribulation. So what we're talking about here is the tribulation judgment that separates the survivors from the uh, uh, believers from the unbelievers among the survivors in the uh, in the tribulation. These are those who have survived, not those who were martyred during the tribulation. And it only deals with Gentiles. This is not related to Jews. This is Gentile judgment, the nations, ethnos, not the Jews. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, this is where we're headed, Come, you blessed of my father, what? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What kingdom are we talking about? The millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth when he fulfills those promises God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, the promises he made to David in the Davidic covenant, the promises he made to the Jews in the Palestinian or land covenant, the promises he made in the new covenant. These are all fulfilled at the second coming for Israel during the millennial kingdom. Now, I want you to notice something here. You put yourself in the place of the sheep. You're a tribulation believer. You've managed to survive the tribulation, and you're alive. And you're in, what kind of body do you have? You have a mortal, corruptible body, and it's the sheep judgment. And as soon as you're separated off with the sheep, what does Jesus say to you? Come, you you inherit the kingdom. What kind of body do you have? You've got a mortal body. What are you going to do? You're going to marry and you're going to have children during the millennial kingdom. Well, wait a minute. What's the problem? 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, is this a universal principle? See, that's how a lot of folks will take it. But see, 1 Corinthians 15.50 is in a specific context. It's talking to believers. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now this I say who? Brethren? Who are the brethren? The brethren in 1 Corinthians 15.50 are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are members of the church. Who's involved in Matthew 25 judgment? Members of the church? No. 
Gentile believers in the tribulation period. So we have to recognize that 1 Corinthians 15.50 isn't a universal principle saying that, no, if you're going to go to heaven, you have to have a new body. See, it's talking about entry into the kingdom of God and inheriting the kingdom of God in relationship to church-age believers. Matthew 25 is talking about inheriting the kingdom in relation to Gentile tribulation believers. And so they're different. You have to make that distinction, otherwise you get into a, a, a confusion. Paul is talking about a principle that applies only to church-age believers, that, they, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Before they can inherit the kingdom of God, there has to be a, a change in their, in their body. Corruption does not inherit incorruption. And then in verse 51, he introduces a new doctrine. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, we need to have a sign like this and put it over the nursery. You know, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. He starts off with behold, which in the Greek is sort of like saying, Ten hut, let me have your attention. I tell you a mystery. Now, mystery is the Greek word mysterion, which means a previously unrevealed truth. This isn't like a murder mystery. It's not a whodunit. It's not trying to figure out something that's right there in front of your face. He is using it in the sense of a previously unrevealed truth. This is new doctrine. The church age doctrine, the doctrine related to the reality of the church, doctrine related to the spiritual life of the church, doctrine related to the purpose of the church, was not revealed in the Old Testament. The church is absent from the Old Testament. The church comes in, as it were, even though God in his omniscience knew all along that, that the Jews would reject Jesus Christ, and he would go from our perspective, talking from a human viewpoint, from plan A to plan B. Plan A was Jews would accept the Messiah, he would still have to be crucified, but they would immediately, he would immediately bring in the kingdom. That was the early message of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ and of the disciples. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the Jews didn't, so the kingdom was postponed. The reason, the church, one reason that the church was not mentioned in the Old Testament was because then it would have been Clear to the Jews, they weren't going to get the kingdom when the Messiah came. So they have a real choice, and they reject the Messiah. So there's a postponement of the kingdom. And so now there is going to be new revelation given related to this interregnum period, this this parenthesis between the first advent and the second advent, and that is called the mystery doctrine of the church age. So Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And sleep is a, a euphemism for the believer's body going into the grave to await a resurrection. It's only used in relation to believers in the New Testament. It's not talking about soul sleep. This is related to what happens to the physical body. We, we receive an interim body. And we have that interim body until the Lord returns, of which time we receive our resurrection body. We shall not all sleep indicates that not every believer in the church age is going to die physically. 
Some of us will not die physically. Now, maybe all of us in this room will die physically, but not all believers in the church age will die physically. Some will be taken to be face-to-face with the Lord at the rapture. They'll still be alive at the rapture. But all of us will be changed. Every single believer will have to go through this uh, transformation, this this change. We shall all... Uh, we shall all be changed, a la Gesamitha, which means a transfer or receiving a different body. 1 Corinthians 15.52 describes this transformation. It takes place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Then Paul says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So this is framed by that phrase, we shall be changed. How does it take place? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, if we look at the Scripture, the word moment is the Greek word atomos, which is where we get our word atom. It is the, in Greek thought, it was the smallest possible indivisible particle. So it's, this would apply in time to the smallest possible indivisible portion of time. And for us, that would be a nanosecond. It happens so quickly, it's almost immeasurable in terms of time. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and this is the Greek word ripe, R-H-I-P-E, and this referred to the rapid movement of the eye. Nothing moves quicker than the eye. If you just look at somebody and they shift their eye from, from one place to another, that's how quickly it takes place. This isn't the winking of an eye. It's not the blinking of an eye. It is, it is this, this rapid movement of the eye from one thing to another, just, just instantaneous, so quick, immeasurable. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, what is the last trumpet? You see, we have a lot of different trumpets mentioned in the book of Revelation and in prophecies. We'll get into our study of Revelation in second hour. We'll see that there are three series of judgments in the book of Revelation, the first series of the seven seal judgments, but the seventh seal judgment is made up of seven trumpet judgments. And so there are people who want to identify this trumpet in First Corinthians fifteen fifty-two with the last trumpet in the trumpet judgments, which contains the, the seventh trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation, contains the seven bowl judgments. And that takes place right at the end of the tribulation. So they argue that this takes place at the end of the tribulation. But this is not talking about the last trumpet of Revelation. There are many different trumpets that are blown in Scripture. This is the last trumpet at the end of the church age. This is what culminates the church age. And then we're told the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, so that all believers who have died physically will receive a new incorruptible body, and we shall be changed. Now, the parallel passage to this is over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Who are those who are asleep? Believers who have died physically and whose bodies are in the grave. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of an archangel and with what? The trumpet of God. This is the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15:52. With the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them where? In the clouds. See, this doesn't take place on the earth. At the second coming, Jesus returns to the earth. At the rapture, for the church-age believer, he is in the clouds, and we meet him in the air and will always be with the Lord. Now, one reason we know that the Lord's not just descending and he has, you know, stop one is, you know, at the cloud station, and then he picks up all the believers and then he keeps coming down to the earth, is because in a passage such as John 14.1, Jesus says that, uh, that he is going to his Father, where there are many mansions, that where I am, you may be also. Now, where he is is in heaven, not on the earth. See, if we're not going to heaven, but we're just going to meet him in the heaven, we're sort of going to be like a yo-yo, we're going to bounce up to the clouds and then come down with him, then we don't get to heaven. We're just going to the earth. So John 14.1 wouldn't make sense doesn't fit the scenario. Furthermore, before we can have the wedding ceremony with the groom, there has to be a purification. And the purification of church-age believers takes place at the judgment seat of Christ because Revelation 19 says that when we return with Him, we are clothed in white garments, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, we don't get that those white garments until after the judgment seat of Christ. So there's no time there for the rapture to take place at the end of the tribulation. So the trumpet that is blown is the last trumpet indicating the end of the present church age. And that can happen at any moment. Now let's get an overview of what takes place. We're in the church age. The church age ends with the rapture of the church when believers are caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. This is followed by a seven-year tribulation which fulfills the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. This seven-year tribulation is related to God's plan for Israel and bringing them to a point of repentance where they will change their mind, that's what repent means, where they will change their mind about the Messiah and they will call upon the Lord to save them. This doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation. And then Jesus Christ returns to the earth and he establishes his thousand-year kingdom on the earth known as the millennial kingdom. This coming of Christ at the rapture, let's back up, this coming of Christ at the rapture is said to be imminent. From the early days of the church, the believers have taught that this is imminent. It could happen at any time. What we mean by imminent is that no prophecy has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. We're not looking for something to happen first. We're not looking for Armageddon to happen first, and then Jesus will come back. We're not looking for the rise of the Antichrist first, and then Jesus will come back. See, we're looking for the blessed hope which is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not looking for the rise of the ten-nation confederacy of the revived Roman Empire. The next event for us to look for in prophecy is the rapture. Now let me say something about that. The principle is that no prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place. Let me say it again. I'm going to be very precise here. No prophecy 
needs to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place. As far as the church goes, that's the next thing on the prophecy scene. No, no prophecy has to take place before the rapture takes before the rapture comes. However, that's not the same as saying that some prophecy might be fulfilled before the rapture takes place. Now, what do I mean by that? The rapture is not contingent on anything else happening. It could hap- it could have happened in 100 A.D. It could happen next week. Nothing has to happen. Israel doesn't have to be back in the land. Uh, there doesn't have to be a, a, another temple built on the Temple Mount. Uh, nothing, there doesn't need to be a, a, a re, uh, recovery of the, of the Aaronic priesthood in order for temple services to take place. None of these, the Antichrist doesn't need to be there. None of these things need to be there before the rapture takes place. However, there are some things that might be fulfilled before the tribulation takes place or before the rapture takes place in relation to setting the stage for the tribulation. For example, the Old Testament teaches very clearly that there are two distinct returns of Jews to the land. The first is a return in unbelief. The second is a return in belief. Now, unfortunately, for too long, there have been some Bible teachers who have taught only one return. And they diminish the significance of the return of Jews to the land today and say, well, you know, they could be wiped out tomorrow and then a thousand years from now they can come back. But the problem is the Bible only speaks of two returns, not three, not four, not five. The first is a return in unbelief. That's what we are witnessing right now. That's what's been going on since since before 1948 with the first and second and third aliyahs that occurred at the late 19th century and early 20th century as Jews began to uh, migrate back to Israel and then culminated in the founding of the modern Israel state in 1948. So we have uh, this return in unbelief. They will build an apostate temple. Now that may come before the rapture. I don't think it will happen until after the rapture, but it could come before the rapture. But these are fulfillments of prophecy from the Old Testament. But they're not necessary for the rapture. Israel can return in unbelief a thousand years before the rapture takes place. They don't mean it's around the corner because the rapture is imminent. That means nothing, there's, there's no sign related to the rapture whatsoever. It can happen at any instant. So, this is the belief of the church from the earliest days. In the early church, we know that they held to uh, a, an imminent rapture. In First Clement, Clement, who was a pastor in Rome, wrote, Of a truth, soon and suddenly shall, shall his will be accomplished, as the Scripture also bears witness, saying, Speedily will he come and will not tarry, and the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One, for whom ye look. So he took those passages as teaching eminency. It could happen at any moment. Another writer in the early uh, second century, Ignatius uh, of Antioch, in his letter to the Ephesians, wrote, The last times are come upon us. He recognized that the whole church age is in some sense the last days. Let us therefore be of a reverent spirit and fear the long suffering of God that attend not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come or show regard for the grace which is at present displayed, one of two things. He understood that the last times are upon us, come upon us. It's imminent, so we need to be ready. 
Irenaeus, in his uh, classic work around 165, 170 A.D., called Contra Heresis in the Latin, Against Heresies is the translation. And he says, And therefore, when in the end the church shall be suddenly, there's the key word, suddenly caught up from this, it is said, There shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. He understood that it was sudden. It could happen at any moment, at any instant. So this is the doctrine of imminency. Jesus could come back today, tomorrow, next week. We don't look for signs. We're looking for the coming of Christ. The first point is to understand the, the definition. Well, let me skip past this slide. Definition. Imminency means at any moment. It doesn't mean the soon coming of Jesus, but the at any moment coming of Jesus. It may not be soon, but it, it is near. It is in the sense of imminent. It could happen at any moment. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word imminent as something that is hanging overhead, constantly ready to befall or overtake one, or close at hand in its incidents. It could happen at any moment. The word is spelled with an I, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-Y. It's different from the word imminent, meaning I-M-M-E-N-E-N-T. Imminent means that God is present to all of his creation. So we have to make sure we distinguish between the doctrine of imminence and the doctrine of imminence. Okay? Make that clear. It is certain that it will occur. Jesus is returning. But it is uncertain when it will occur. Certain it will occur. It is uncertain when it will occur. It could happen at any moment. It's not necessarily soon or immediate, but it is near. It is not contingent on any other events. We don't look for something else. No prophesied event intervenes between the believer and the rapture. There's nothing necessary to take place. So something could take place at the end of the church age that is setting things up for what will happen after the rapture. But, it, but if any prophecy is fulfilled at the end of the church age as part of the transition to the tribulation, it doesn't have anything to do with the church. It doesn't signal the soon, or it doesn't signal that the rapture is about to take place, but it is simply preparing the stage, setting things up for the for the beginning of the tribulation, and it relates to Israel in the tribulation and not to the church in the church age. Second point, the doctrine of imminency is important to understand the pre-tribulational return of Jesus Christ at the rapture. Because if, it's, if you have all of these things that are going to take place in the, in the tribulation that must take place before Jesus comes back, then it's not imminent, is it? It can't happen at any, any moment. You've got to see the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet, the ten-nation confederacy. You've got to see all those things happen before Jesus comes back. So it can't happen at any moment. If it's n- not imminent, then all the events of Matthew 24 would have to come first. But that's not true. The writers of Scripture clearly understood it could happen at any moment. So imminency is key to understanding the pre-tribulation uh, return of Jesus Christ for the church. Here's a definition of the rapture. The rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers 
and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, immediately before the tribulation begins. I'm thinking about taking immediately out of there, because we don't know. There could be a transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the church age, but it precedes the the tribulation. That's the next uh, dispensation. The resurrection of all dead church age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age prior to, let's change it, prior to the beginning of the tribulation. See, there are different ways of that Christians have interpreted these passages. You have a pre-trib rapture where all believers are raptured prior to or before the tribulation takes place. Then you also have a post-tribulation rapture, which has the rapture occurring at the end of the tribulation. I pointed out the problem with that is that that there's not enough room for 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 uh, judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we don't go to heaven, and there's no imminency in in that particular position. So in post-trib rapture, the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, and that is a false position. Let's see. I skipped a number here. Let's go to, um, this should be three. Got the number wrong. Should be three. The purpose for the doctrine of an eminency is to keep each believer in a constant state of expectancy. We're looking. We're waiting. We're watching. We're hoping for the return of Jesus Christ that we might be ready and prepared and not be ashamed at His coming. The purpose of the doctrine of eminency is to keep us ready. This is where Paul is going. You go, we go through this whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and we have 57 verses on discussing the doctrine of resurrection in one way or another. And there's one application. We have heavy doctrine for 57 verses. This, Paul, is, Paul would never make it in a modern American superficial church. See, most Americans want to go to church and get some three or four points of application so they can go home and apply it that afternoon, which is just stupid. shows how shallow they are. And Paul gives you 57 hardcore verses of, of good doctrine and one verse of application. See, this is how Scripture works, just the opposite of how human viewpoint works. And his conclusion is, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of the imminency of the, of, of the rapture, in light of the fact that, that we're about to inherit the kingdom, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that your toil in the Lord will not be in vain. That's the last verse. And it is a call to being prepared, ready. So we are to constantly be Prepared. Believers are to look, point number four, believers are to look for the blessed hope. We are to uh, look for the Savior in Hebrews 9.28 and Titus 2.13. We are promised a reward for those who look for His coming, a special crown. We are to watch for the Savior. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 and Luke 12.37. And we are to wait for the Savior, 1 Corinthians 1.7 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We are to look for the Savior, we are to watch for the Savior, and we are to wait for the Savior. 
A couple of other passages. I don't want to read through all of these passages. Just give you the re- uh, references. Luke 12:35 and following. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. This relates to the the ten virgins. Five were ready. Five weren't. We need to be ready. Matthew 24:36 to 38. But of that day and hour, no one knows. We need to be ready. Verse six. I mean, point five rather. I'm off a number here. Point five. No prophecy between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture means that the rapture is imminent. It could occur at any time. No one knows the day or the hour. Seven. While the rapture is imminent, the second advent is not. Before the second advent occurs, there are many prophecies which must occur. The rapture must occur, the tribulation must occur, the judgment seat of Christ must occur. All the events of Revelation chapter chapter 6 through 19 that take place on the earth, all of those events must take place before the second coming. This is point number six. Point number seven, the resurrection of the church is totally beyond our control because resurrection is the Lord's victory. In Philippians chapter 3... Philippians chapter 3, you don't need to turn there with me right now, but I just need to catch the reference. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 11, if by, it's a bad translation by the way, if, and it's translated by any means, but it's an idiom there, and it really, he's not saying if, maybe I will, maybe I won't. He is, he is saying if and I will, that I will attain to the resurrection from the dead. It is a, form that could either be translated as a subjunctive or as an indicative. Most people take it as a subjunctive because they have bad theology. It's an indicative indicating if and I will attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that word resurrection is ex anastasis, meaning the out-resurrection. Anastasis is the normal word for resurrection, and this refers to that out-resurrection from the dead, which is the rapture. Now, the reason I say it must be taken with certainty, Paul isn't talking there about maybe I'll attain to the rapture and maybe I'll, I'll die first. Because one way or the other, he's going to attain to the rapture. Whether he dies first or not is irrelevant. He will be raptured. So, uh, all I'm pointing out is that phrase, that word resurrection, ex anastasis, is another word for the rapture. It's part of being removed from the dead. So the out-resurrection of the church is part of that victory that Jesus Christ gives us over death. 1 Corinthians 15:57. Point number seven. Point number seven. While the rapture is imminent, the second advent is not. Before the second advent... Have we covered that one already? Did I get that out of order? I must have. Let's back up. Let's close with a couple of scriptures, important scriptures on the on the rapture. Second Peter three three. Know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, asking the question, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They question whether he will come. John fourteen one passage we've referred to already, 14, 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to take us to that place he's prepared for us, which isn't on the earth, it's in heaven. Revelation 22:12. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Coming quickly is a doctrine of eminence. Jesus Christ can come at any moment. So we need to be prepared. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52, we are introduced to the doctrine of the rapture, that we are going to be transformed with a new body instantly and quicker, quicker than we can think about it, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, and we will put on incorruption and mortality will put on immortality. We'll come back next time and we will look at the conclusion to this chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for what you have provided for us. We thank you that we have a Lord who will return for us and that we look forward to that. That is our blessed hope that Jesus Christ can return at any moment and take us to be with him in heaven, where we can glorify you and where we can uh, witness all of the events that will take place at the end times on the earth. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who is not prepared for that event, that's unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny. Well, this is your opportunity to make that both sure and certain, your opportunity to know for sure that you will have an eternity in heaven. Scripture makes it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Trust in Him exclusively for your salvation. Salvation is not based on your relationship to the church. It's not based on good works. It's not based on your morality. It's not based on what you've done or what you haven't done. It's based on the Word of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.